Our scripture reading uh, this morning will be in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. Again, Acts 4.32 through 5.32, actually 5.11. Yeah. This is the word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were the owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain as your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, uh, so here we are in Acts once more, uh, continuing in the early years of the church. Now in Acts 4.32 uh, through 5.11, Luke takes us inside the interior life of the church. Acts regularly shows us uh, the church scattered on mission. Its work is happening at a fast pace. The gospel speeds throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The apostles are preaching, healing, planting churches, and we see this uh, ever-growing need for Paul to, to get to Rome, to get to these population centers within the Roman Empire. As we read about the church scattered, however, Luke occasionally allows us glimpses into how things looked inside the church as it gathered. And this passage is one of those times. One of the pictures that Luke provides here is wonderfully encouraging. The other is terrifying and sobering. These two stories are intimately and no doubt strategically tied together. Even though we have a chapter heading dividing the passage, the stories are tied together grammatically. 
After telling us about Barnabas, Luke begins the next story with this conjunction, but comparing the two. Both accounts describe the selling of property and the giving of an offering from the sales. And both stories use this adjective of great. Did you notice this repeated word through this? Great. In the first story, we read of great power and great grace. In the second story, we read of great fear. Luke uses the two scenarios to highlight the unmatched kindness and unmatched holiness of God at work in the church. As a whole, the two stories cooperate to illustrate two points. These are my main headings this morning. The first one is this. Genuine faith gives us the freedom to fall in love with people and out of love with things. Genuine faith gives us this freedom. And the second one is that faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. Faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. Luke is making it clear once more that these people in Jerusalem are different than they were before Pentecost. Things don't seem uh, to be changing despite opposition from religious leaders. In the text we uh, went through last week, we saw um, uh, apostles being brought in to answer questions. And yet here in verse 32, we read, now the full number of those who believed. Notice that word. This is the key. Believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord, trusting him for all you need, being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. That's the key. That's the root of what's happening in this story. This is what makes this group of people different. This is what has changed their life since the preaching at Pentecost. Everything good comes from this life-changing belief. And this is the great power of the message uh, of the apostles. Now, this authentic faith of believing in Jesus, it has two effects for this community. Those who believed were of one heart and soul. There you see the, the first effect, that believing in Jesus tightens the heart's relationship to people, especially other Christians who are now our brothers and sisters. When you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to people by love, this love that Jesus has shared with us all. But then comes the other effect that you read. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So there's this second effect in trusting Jesus. First, the heart's tightened in the relationship to people. And then second, the heart is loosened in its relationship to things. Faith in Christ creates a bond of love to people, and it cuts a bond of love to things. Now things become merely a means of loving people. And make no mistake, this is not some communal thing where it's saying what you, what's yours is, is also mine. It's this distinction between personal possessions and private possessions, right? A personal possession is like, this, this, is, this is mine, it's important to me, I value this. A private possession says, this is mine and it's not yours. It is exclusive to me. And so they weren't selling everything, 
Some people were selling large portions of land, but they were providing out of the excess because this is what had, because of the great grace within them, they were now living out this grace towards one another. This great grace, unmerited favor was being experienced spiritually in their salvation. And it was being seen physically in the great care that was being shown to those in need. It didn't matter what qualifications or need that you had, whether you were born into poverty, whether you were handicapped, maybe you were suffering from tremendous debt. If you were poor, if you were needy, that was the qualification in need, then grace was extended to you. The free gift of grace in a believer's life means that we are free to live graciously towards other people. We who have experienced this great grace are free to mirror that great grace into the lives of those around us. Jesus had said it in Luke chapter 12. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. This is exactly what they were doing in Acts chapter 4. And it was not because they had to in order to earn God's favor or keep church rules. It was because they had heard the words of Jesus and believed it. How would it change your life if you believed these words, that it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? What worries might you set aside if you started living in the reality that God has given you his kingdom and that there is nothing more that you need to be satisfied. There's no reason to fear faith in the promises of God's fatherly care produces freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety, and therefore freedom from things or a felt need for things, a need to be satisfied by something else because we are satisfied in God. It also produces freedom for people and a freedom for love. The extent of this freedom is expressed by Peter towards Ananias in chapter 5. Peter says to Ananias, while your property remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? You see, there aren't any church rules here that say you have to sell your property. The way, the manner in which you're expressing this freedom and this care for others, it, there's no qualif qualifications for what you need to do. Uh, it, no one's saying it's not yours anymore. Uh, Peter's saying, Ananias, if people around you are saying my possessions are not mine anymore, this is not because they have to say this. It's because they want to say this. They've been changed from the inside out by trusting in Jesus. They are free. In other words, no one's being coerced to bring money in here. If your heart doesn't tell you to bring it, then don't bring it. And I think there's a lot of satisfaction in this, this Christian liberty in the manner in which we give. I mean, I've been in a lot of churches. I've been to thousand, you know, thousand member churches that have multi-million dollar budgets, no telling how much they do in benevolence and church planning and caring for the poor. I've also visited churches in India where the church service, somebody's bringing chicken eggs because that's what they have. And they're saying, this is what I have. If you know anyone, if anybody knows anyone that needs this, 
I want them to have it. it. Because we have this spectrum of freedom in the manner in which we give, and we all are involved in particular relationships where we see the needs of others. You, you are free to go and care for those people. It's not something that's delegated just to the church, right? It doesn't mean that because we just come together that, that we're better off using this money together to care for others. You have the relationships that you have, and you are free to care for people in this way. Genuine faith gives us the freedom to fall in love with people and out of love with things. But here in, uh, in Acts, we have this comparison of genuine faith and fake faith. What Luke does to make this real for us is give us these two living examples. Barnabas, a man who really experiences on the inside the freedom of faith in Christ, and Ananias and Sapphira, a man and woman who try to fake it on the outside when it's not really there. Look at Barnabas. In verse 36, it says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, from this, we have to picture Luke as well. He's writing this entire book of Acts. He, he knows that this isn't the last you're going to hear of Barnabas, right? This is our introduction to Barnabas. That's all we know right now, but later we meet him as an advocate of the new convert Paul in chapter 9. We meet him as the shepherd of new Gentile converts in Antioch as he's leading a group there. We see that he is one trusted with relief to the poor. He's one that can be trusted with money and dispensing it. And he's the first partner of Paul on his missionary journeys. And then he's even an advocate for giving John Mark a second chance after John Mark had left Paul and Barnabas on a previous missionary journey. He shines as one of the most mature, reliable, lovable leaders in the early church. And right here in Acts 4, Luke shows us how Barnabas' trusted ministry began. It began with a demonstrated freedom from the love of things and a heart of love for the poor. In this story, he stands for the way genuine faith gives us the freedom to fall in love with people and out of love with things. Ananias and Sapphira, though, stand as exact opposites, namely people who have not really been changed on the inside by being satisfied with all that God is for them in Christ, but who still want a place in the visible church. The reason they drop dead is not because this is what happens to all hypocrites, thankfully. For example, this doesn't happen to Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. He tried to buy the Holy Spirit from the apostles after he saw the power of God working. The reason they drop dead is to give a stunning warning to the whole church that phony Christians will end up this way sooner or later. God means for his people to fear hypocrisy. He means for us to be afraid of treating the Holy Spirit with contempt. Notice at the end of verse 5, after Ananias had died, 
It says that great fear came upon all who heard of it. Then again in verse 11, after Sapphira dies, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the lesson that Luke wants us to get. Faking faith in the presence of God is a fearful thing. So what was wrong with Ananias and Sapphira? What were some of their mistakes? The first one, they loved their money. They loved their money. They sold the land, they saw the cash, and they couldn't bear to give it all away. Peter says that Ananias and Sapphira, they kept back part of the proceeds. This Greek verb is actually used to mean pilfer or embezzle. So you're manipulating people and taking something that belongs to someone else. Ananias, Judas, the rich young ruler, and millions more testify to the devastating nature of greed. It must have no place within the church. They wanted to look more generous than they really were. They wanted to look generous. Theirs was a pretend holiness, fake piety. Ananias and Sapphira were forced neither to sell a field nor to give all of the proceeds once the property was sold. Doing either was totally voluntary. But they wanted people to think that they gave everything. At the same time, they wanted their money too. They were praise seekers. They wanted people to think highly of them. Seems like Ananias came in during a large gathering of the church. He didn't come in on a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Seems like he came in uh, a large gathering of believers because he wanted to be seen giving. These two wanted a reputation like Barnabas without having the compassion of Barnabas. Perhaps Ananias wanted a nickname too. A phrase that would make him sound important just might increase his popularity. They not only loved money, they loved the praise of men. The two almost always go together in Scripture. Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day in Luke 16, uh, saying this, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Love for money and love for praise often run together. They also lied. They lied. The couple lied about their charity, and they did it together. The ease with which one can lie without considering the damaging ramifications on yourself and others, this demonstrates the sinful nature, the deepest sinful nature of humanity. Paul says in Romans, that this is a symptom of one's sinful nature, when you are indiscriminate in your lying. You don't care about what it means for you and others. This is how the godless behave, not those who believe. This contrasts with God's nature. It says of God in Titus 1, it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot tell a lie. And God calls his people to be a people of integrity, just like him. I mean, did this couple skip the day that the rabbi read from Proverbs chapter 6, where it says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, 
hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I mean, that's like four out of seven probably in their life, in this one thing where they're going against God, the things that God hates. Truth, honesty, integrity are found in the nature of God. Lies oppose the very nature and work of God. Because it's hard for us to understand the holiness of God, it's hard to understand how serious lying really is. Peter says that the couple lied directly to God. That concept is terrifying. It suggests that God takes the untruths that we tell to one another as personal offenses. When we don't value the holiness of God, we minimize sins like lying. And when we do that, we devalue the cross where Jesus traded places with liars. They were liars. They were also deceivers. You see how these two planned what they did. How foolish to think that no one knows about sinful plotting. God always knows what is done and said in secret. We can't hide anything from him. Lastly, they they were Satan's instruments. Whatever we make of Peter's question about Satan filling Ananias' heart, we must affirm the real influence of the enemy in their lives. How the devil destroys through a love of money, falsehood, and hypocrisy. He tempts people to act unwisely and godlessly. He tempts people to think that sin is no big deal. But make no mistake, The enemy's ultimate goal in all of this is to destroy God's people and to defame the church. In many ways, this story mirrors the story of Cain and Abel back in Genesis chapter 4. Think of Cain and Abel, the, the first two children born to Adam and Eve. It says that both of them brought an offering before God and that the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but with Cain and his offering, he was not pleased. So Cain became furious, and his expression was downcast. Then the Lord speaks to Cain, Why are you angry? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. Hear me, church. The enemy is looking for ways to defame and destroy God's people. Don't let your guard down. A negative response to the providence of God and the people of the church, that can be the ammunition that the enemy needs in order to destroy and defame. Most grievously, they discredited the Holy Spirit in these actions. Verse 3 says they lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says they lied not to man, but to God. Verse 9 says they tempted the Lord. I think it's important for us to try and say how exactly they discredited the Holy Spirit. They defamed the Holy Spirit with their actions. So here are three possible answers for what that means. One is that they may not have even believed the Holy Spirit was even present in the church. 
Maybe they didn't even reckon with this reality. Uh, they may have simply functioned on a human level and never even thought about the real presence of the Spirit of the living God. Or, two, maybe they believed in His presence in some theoretical way, but they just didn't think that He knew the thoughts of their minds. He was there, maybe, but He wasn't real. He wasn't a person who knew things and felt things and acted in real ways. Or perhaps they thought he was there and real, but that he wouldn't really punish them. Perhaps they had a view of grace that says, no matter how devious or hypocritical you are, God always tolerates everything. And so it is that the Holy Spirit is discredited and defamed in the church today. Some people come to worship and operate totally on the human level, never even reckoning never even reckoning with the living presence of God in this room. I'm so grateful for just Clay reading Isaiah this morning. Like that, that picture of God in, on His throne, in His temple, in His sanctuary, before His people, before us. Some come and give theoretical assent to the presence of uh, the Holy Spirit, but they don't really come to terms with the awesome fact that He hears every thought in their mind and sees every imagination of their heart. And others come and convince themselves that the thoughts of the heart are not serious enough. They're not serious enough to forsake, because grace always means tolerance. In each of these three cases, in our lives, when we don't view God this way, the Spirit can be discredited and demeaned, defamed. But wasn't this instantaneous judgment extreme? Doesn't this seem like a little much? Does God really cause people to just drop dead on the spot in the middle of church? Only if you minimize the offense by minimizing the one against whom the sin was committed. When you make little of the sin, you make little of the one whom you sinned against. God had been belittled by the actions of these two. His church was facing a satanic assault made apparent by their deeds. And God takes these things very seriously. We read later in 1 Corinthians in Paul's letter, he spoke about God's judgment on people who took the Lord's Supper impurely. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28-30, we read, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread, drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and why some of you have died. He's saying that you're coming into the presence of God. You're coming to the table of remembrance and you're doing in such a way without examining yourself. You're belittling your sin and therefore belittling the God in whose presence we are remembering these things. Hebrews uh, warns that it's possible to outrage the Spirit of grace. I think, ah, the Spirit of grace, surely he's got plenty. He's always got more, right? How are you going to outrage someone who's full of grace? And yet Hebrews 10.29 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. 
The only reason that these words sound harsh to our ears is that we are not God. One of God's attributes is that he's omnibenevolent. He's all good. He's also all-knowing. He's a perfect judge, and he's all-powerful. He is right to execute that judgment. Think about those things. He is good in all of his rulings. He knows everything. He doesn't need lawyers to come in and provide evidence. He knows it all. He's, so he can judge accordingly. And then lastly, he's all-powerful, that he can do something about it in the way that is good and right. This is in a way that no human judge could ever do. This judgment on Ananias and Sapphira was not only just, but it was good. It stopped the people of God from being defamed by hypocrisy at a vital time in their story. There's two other accounts, which we're not going to read this morning, that parallel this as well. In Leviticus 10, after they've built the tabernacle and received the law from Mount Sinai, uh, God has clear, given clear instructions on how they're meant to approach him, right? The presence of God, the glory of God is now in the midst of the camp. And we get this whole book of Leviticus on how we're meant to properly approach God in worship. Aaron's two sons, um, Nadab and Abihu, they come and it says they presented a strange fire before God. They had been given the instructions. They had been given uh, the weightiness of what it means for God to be in their midst. And yet they chose to do it their own way. And they were struck down there in the tabernacle. Similarly, in, in Joshua chapter 7, as the people of God are coming into the promised land, they've conquered Jericho. And what God said about all of the possessions and all the spoils of Jericho is that they were meant to be left as a testament to this victory. They were be set apart. Uh, and yet there's this one man named Achan. And it says he saw a beautiful cloak, and he saw some gold, and he saw some silver. And he took it for himself, and he hid it in his tent. And then, at the next battle against Ai, the whole nation suffers defeat. And they come to God, and Joshua says, why did this happen? And, jo and God communicates to him, like, there is someone in the midst that has caused this to happen. So they weed it down, they weed it down, they weed it down. And I love what Joshua says. As Achan stands before Joshua in judgment, Joshua says to him, praise the Lord that you haven't kept this hidden, that we've revealed this sin, this hypocrisy. Because what this was doing, this sin it was stopping the advancement of God's plans, the advancements of, of God's uh, history of salvation and his kingdom. And so it was important that God would rightly, and powerfully, and correctly uh, judge these people, particularly Ananias and Sapphira. Fear of God, then, is evidence of love for God. If you can see that God is an all-powerful judge and do your respect and awe and admiration, you can see those things. It should make you love the mercy of God more. But this makes no sense to most of us. Psalm 130, though, it, it says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you 
there is forgiveness that you may be feared. When we think about our life, when we, don't, we can't even number our sins. It says, if God should do it, and we had to see it, who could stand before God, before our, the weight of our sins? And yet there is forgiveness in God. And what does that produce in us? It's supposed to produce a fear, an awe, a respect for God. When we are serious with sin, grace sounds so sweet. Think about your own story. Being honest with the sin in your life, you're telling people, man, this is, I was all over the map. These are all of the things that now I know, like I was just living wrong. And yet, God, the story of grace in your life sounds so sweet when you know what God has saved you from. So be honest with God concerning your sin. Let's be honest with one another in the church concerning sin. As it turns out, holiness and godly fear are a great way to build a church. In Acts 2 and in Acts 5, we read about the fear of the Lord, the reverence, respect, and awe that had come upon these new believers. And it leads to more and more believing and entering into the family of God. Church, we have been powerfully forgiven at the cross. Fear living in such a way that shows the cross of Christ is not important to you. We don't have to fear condemnation. We should fear living like we haven't been changed and saved. Fear of God reflects a love of God. Fear of God makes you live authentically. So fear dishonoring God. Obviously, Ananias and Sapphira, they needed a healthy fear of the Lord. The God of all the earth demands respect. So as we consider this passage, we shouldn't think, God would never do that to me. Rather, we need to remember, Galatians 6, God is not mocked. Just ask Uzzah, Nadab, Abihu, King Uzziah, the Exodus generation, and even the powerful people in Revelation at the end of the story, they hide in caves and under mountains and they pray that the rocks would fall on them because they fear the judgment of God. Proverbs teaches us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't stand in awe of God, you are unwise. This story tells the church to repent while there's still time. God does extend grace. Just look at the next story. In fact, it shows how the church continued to increase and multiply despite this failure within the church. God purifies his church for the good of others who would believe, offering even more grace along the way. But let's end with this, uh, point, points of application. Let's fix our eyes on Barnabas and not on Ananias and Sapphira. How was he different? He was different in every way. Let me give you four points to close. He did not love money and things. When he sold his field, he did not dream about all the comforts and pleasures that he was giving up. He reveled in the freedom of faith. He dreamed about the good that would be done through this gift and the glory that it would bring Jesus. 
Number two, he did not want to appear more generous than he was. He did not need the praise of men. He had the approval of God. What you saw was what you got. He was real. He was authentic. Three, therefore, he he did not lie. He loved the truth. He could be trusted. In fact, his integrity became legendary in the early church. And finally, he brought no reproach on the Holy Spirit. He knew that the Spirit was alive and real in the church. He knew that every thought was open and laid bare before the Spirit of truth. And he knew that the gift of grace in his life was not the permission of God to keep on loving things, but the power of God to start loving people. Pray with me. Father, we uh, ask that you reveal our hearts. That even today, in this moment, may we be able to take the time to reflect on our actions, on our words, on our dreams. And that we would be honest with you about what our motivation is in these things. God, are we doing things out of a uh, a sense of um, self-fulfillment, satisfaction outside of you? Are we looking for um, the approval of others? Or are we standing in authentic faith and integrity, Father? As these sins come to life, as our failures come to life, I just... Uh, Pray that we would hear the words of Joshua to Achan. That praise the Lord that this thing wasn't kept secret. May we stop living a life of hypocrisy that risks defaming you, defaming your people. But help us to live lives of integrity and faithfulness. May we experience this grace that you've given us in such a way that it overflows into the way we love people around us, the way we meet needs around us. Thank you for the freedom to be free from um, the control of of things and the fear of, of losing things and not having enough. May we rest in you in the ways that you take care of us. I pray that you reveal these things to our heart even now. In Jesus' name, amen.